Oh, how zen. And then like suddenly I was like, That's oh my God, this rocked my world that I need to like reconsider this joke as being actually rather a sophisticated joke. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by why it is we have opened up indoor stadiums. I am so confused as to why anybody thought this was a good idea. And I'm I'm also confused as to why they've opened up in Texas, opened up the baseball stadium, which is outdoor. That's good. But at full capacity. This is astounding to me. Well, that's Texas. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> but just the idea that we are opening things up to the extent that we are is pretty strange to me. Yeah, that's a whole podcast in itself. It absolutely is. So I'm Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health at Boston University's School of Public Health. And I'm here, as always, with Dr. Chris Gill from the Department of Global Health. Welcome, Chris. Hello, Matthew. Hello, Don. And Dr. Don Thea from the Department of Global Health. Welcome, Don. Hi, Chris. Hi, Matt. And as a reminder, head on over to the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. That's BU's hub for lifelong learning. You'll find all kinds of interesting public health learning programs and tools over there. And also, if you could uh, go onto your favorite podcast app, iTunes, Stitcher, whatever it is, and give us a rating. So we've got we've got a new rating, guys. And I feel um, this one is a little self-serving, but I'm gonna I'm gonna read it anyway. So it was a it was a five star rating from Lizzie Cambu via Apple Podcast, and it says, "Full disclosure, I'm a big nerd, and Professor Fox was my favorite professor from my time at BU School of Public Health. Even for non nerds, though, this is an interesting and insightful listen. So there you go, positive positive hey, review. That's great." Always good to get the positive review. So we we very much appreciate it. We'd love to hear any more feedback you all have. So now on to the show. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we're going to look at a study that looked at whether you can detect concussions through a saliva test. In the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive segment, we'll talk about how to take on the anti-vax industry. And then in our third segment, which is our Amazing Amusing, we will get into some things that make us laugh out loud. So let's get into segment one. So we're going to talk about an article that looked at the possibility of being able to detect concussions through a saliva-based test. It was published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine and was entitled Unique Diagnostic Signatures of Concussion in the Saliva of Male Athletes, the Study of Concussion in Rugby Union through MicroRNAs, the Scrum Study, which if you're a rugby fan, you know that's a, a joke, by first author Valentina DiPietro of the University of Birmingham and the Institute of Inflammation and Aging in Birmingham, UK. So uh, a couple of headlines from this one. It's got a lot of news. So Yahoo News says saliva test a game changer. Game changer. Uh, get it? I get it. Game changer in rugby's fight against concussions. The Guardian says pitch side saliva tests could be used to diagnose concussions. The Washington Post says concussions can be diagnosed through saliva test researchers find. MSN says Distinct chemical signatures, signatures in air quotes, for concussions in rugby players. And then the standard says big progress in tackling the scourge of concussions in contact sports. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. 
So we can see that, the, the first of all, the main problem with this study is that it leads to horrible puns. It, yeah, I mean, act, I think that's an important Chris, problem. But Chris, from your standpoint, I would think that would be a major advantage of the study. Yeah, but I don't like sports puns. <laughs> oh. oh, wow. So Chris does, in fact, have a line and he draws it at sports puns. Good to know. Yeah. Good to know. Yeah. Well, Chris, can you walk us through the study and tell us what they did? Sure. So the, the the methods of the study are fairly complicated. So I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of approach this from a very high high level. And if we want to get into the methodological weeds afterwards, we can do that. But I want to keep it simple for for starters. So the the main problem that they are are focused on is that there's this great you know growing awareness that repeated head trauma, uh, including concussions, may lead to traumatic uh, encephalopathy over over time. And you know we we see this debate playing out in our professional leagues in hockey in particular and and, and football in the United States, uh, but also to a lesser degree in soccer and and in other contact sports. And so there's a lot of interest in in trying to understand the relationship between concussions and the, the future evolution of a, of a you know a chronic encephalopathy. And so one of the problems is is that concussions are are, are fairly difficult to diagnose. There are a series of you know at the bedside or you know at the at the side of the athlete sort of clinical evaluations one one can do to sort of screen for for a concussion, but but these are 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 quite difficult. They are challenging for the person who is doing the evaluation to do it correctly, and so this requires a certain degree of expertise. Otherwise, it becomes very subjective very quickly, and it also requires some compliance from the the, the injured athlete who may you know understandably not want to admit that they have been concussed or even realize that they've been concussed because of the, you know, the sort of the irony of the concussion itself, that you are a little bit addled and may not realize that you are addled. And so it is, it is, um, you know, there's an obvious advantage in looking for alternative sort of objective ways of diagnosing concussion. So we can get away from these, you know, these sort of more subjective measures. And so one of the things that has emerged over the, the past couple of years is that there are biomarkers that can be measured in different blood, you know, in different uh, biological fluids, including blood and saliva, potentially spinal fluid as well, that, you know, are fairly good at identifying different kinds of brain pathology. In the case of concussion, though, we're, we're, we're looking possibly for something quite subtle and something that might be like immediately released in response to trauma. And so, you know, taking a more agnostic approach rather than looking for specific named proteins, what the, this group has, has done is to sort of take a, uh, an open-ended look by looking at the expression of different small RNA sequences where the, the function of the RNA is currently unknown. And it's possible that these are also uh, sequences of RNA that have no function, that are just being generated by cells in response to different activities, but don't actually do anything, but nonetheless could potentially serve as markers. And the interest here focuses on small sequences of RNAs that might be detected in saliva. And you'd say, well, you know, why in the world would we be looking at saliva if we're worried about brain injury? And it turns out that neuroanatomy offers an interesting answer to that question because the cranial, you know, several of the cranial nerves, of course, uh, terminate in the mouth. And so the theory here is that these small RNA sequences might actually travel down those neurons and, and be released into the mouth. And so then they, they could be detected in saliva. 
And so to test this question, what, what they did is they partnered with a professional rugby league in the United Kingdom, and they involved nearly all of the athletes in that rugby league. There were a couple teams, I think, that that didn't cooperate, but for the for the main, almost all of them did, and they followed them over two seasons. And basically, they looked for instances where a player uh, suffered a concussion during a professional game. And then they, you know, endeavored to do on-the-spot clinical uh, evaluations of these athletes to see if they met criteria for concussion immediately after the event and also after the game and then sometime after the game. So sort of in a recovery phase, if you will. And so that becomes, in effect, the gold standard for who was concussed and who was not, was the the evaluations on, on the spot and immediately after the game. At the same time, they obtained saliva samples from the athletes at the end of game evaluation and also at the you know the follow on time point, so that they could align the saliva profiles with the gold standard of possible concussion based on the clinical evaluation. And then they also included some interesting control groups here. One of which was athletes who had not suffered any injury at all, and so they were sort of like the the no injury controls. And then it, athletes who had suffered an orthopedic injury as opposed to a, a head trauma to see if, you know, I suppose whether these signals that were they were, you know, identifying were specific to brain trauma or were just released in response to trauma generically. And so that was the basic approach. Methodologically, they wanted to look at these, these data sets in, in terms of identification of specific biomarkers that either singly or in clusters would be predictive of the gold standard, which was the clinical evaluation. And they did this over, over two seasons. And for their modeling efforts in this study, when they were looking at c- clusters of biomarkers, they used season one as the training data set to look for patterns of biomarkers that might be associated with the, 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 the clinical evaluation results. And then they used the second season as sort of the test set. So you've got a training set and you've got a, a test set. So it's sort of, sort of predictive modeling 101. And what they found was really pretty interesting in my view. I have to say that when I when I saw the title of this paper, I was super skeptical and and kind of incredulous. You, were. Like, oh, you sent I it was, to us telling us you were skeptical. Yeah, I immediately scoffed at this and like this can't be true. But by the end of the paper, I actually kind of believed it might be true. And I and I thought it was way more interesting than I than I had anticipated. And so what they found is that, you know, looking at a, at a, a large panel of these small microRNA sequences, again, the function of these is not known, so they're just markers, but they don't know what these markers might be for ordinarily. And they acknowledge that they might not actually be for anything. They just may be sort of non-coding sequences of RNA. But what they found was that there were quite a, a number of differences in the individuals who had head trauma and had you know been judged to be concussed versus those who had not versus the orthopedic injuries so there did seem to be sort of a different general expression of these microRNAs and when they zeroed in on this they found that there were there was one sequence in particular the name is not particularly important but for those who want to know i think i wrote it down somewhere i think it was there's the, this... L- the letfap See, there you go, LETFAP. Oh, so now you all know officially is the the LETFAP mRNA sequence was you know highly highly associated with the concussion. I think the area under the curve was like ninety three percent. So you know a very strong biomarker. 
And they were then able, using these sort of training and validation tests, to identify a cluster of biomarkers that performed even better, up to 96% in terms of their area end of the curve for an ROC evaluation. And and, and so basically they, they answered the question in the positive that absolutely you can detect biological markers of acute trauma, which would resolve over time, but were you know easily detectable within you know, an hour or two of the event, because, you know, of course, rugby games are, are fairly short. So we're talking about an hour after someone has been concussed. And the practical advantage of this is that because the clinical evaluation is difficult to do, because it is biasable, because it requires cooperation, because of all these reasons why it is not really a very convenient test, you know, would it be possible in the future to maybe substitute that somewhat subjective evaluation with a more specific, more objective evaluation using these biomarkers? It's a really intriguing thought. And and I and I also, I guess I would say, it's an interesting thought in terms of, is this now a tool that might be used to to improve the science around traumatic brain injury evaluations in the future? So, you know, we are often in the situation where we have a gold standard test, uh, such as a clinical evaluation for head injury, and then, you know, you develop a biomarker for that. But over time, it becomes clear that the biomarker is, in fact, the gold standard and the head injury evaluation might turn out to be not as good because of all these issues about subjectivity and cooperation and things like that. And, and if that turned out to be true, that would also be extraordinarily useful because now you can really, you know, very specifically identify individuals who've had had sort of, you know, a non-anatomic injury. And what I mean by that is that like if you did a head CT scan of someone who'd had a concussion, you would not expect to see anything sort of macro anatomic on that scan that would say this person's had a concussion. But you you might be able to look at this in terms of PET scans or sort of functional tests or cognitive evaluations. And, and now you really have a, a very clean tool that could sort of further the research. So I, I came away feeling much more persuaded that they might actually be onto something here. I think it definitely needs to be repeated and 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 validated to see if these are, you know, if, if other groups can repeat these these discoveries. The claim by the newspaper that this is a bedside test or, you know, a by-the-field test seems preposterous because this is all done through high-end sequencing, next-generation sequencing. So unless you have a next-generation sequencing kit at the side of the field and a bunch of postdocs to run the machine and run the analysis in real time, I don't think that's quite where this research was going. Nonetheless, it was provocative. Yeah, I mean, it may be early to say that, but presumably the goal would be eventually to get to something like that. So one of the things that I think is is really interesting about this was, as you say, we all kind of went in a bit skeptical. And, and I agree with you, I came away with more of a positive view than I had gone in with. Just to correct one small thing, which is, the, the, or not to correct, to, to give a bit more detail. This was done in Championship League rugby in the UK. And, you know, for those here in the US, that probably doesn't mean anything. But in the, in the, in the UK, their system, they have multiple leagues. So like even with soccer, you have the Premier League, that's the highest league. And then below that, you have the championship. And so we don't have this in the US, but you have this idea of relegation, which means the worst teams in the highest league get sent down to a lower league. So the championship as have either of you guys watched the show Ted Lasso? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great show. I love it. So, as Ted Lasso says in the in the UK, if you if you fail in the Premier League, you get to go to the Championship. So you know, there you go. <laughs> so, Don, what was your uh, 
What was your take on this one? Yeah, I, I, like the two of you, went into this with a huge amount of skepticism. But like Chris, I was brought along. I thought that the, the science was really interesting. And I was, I was fairly convinced. And in the process of, of reading this paper, I, I, I sort of dove into this whole world of RNAs and, and realized we need to recognize that this is now the year of the RNA. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, mRNA has occupied our minds tremendously over the course of the year. But I didn't realize that there is a whole literature that has sp- sprung up over the last five to eight years on using the detection of these small non-coding RNAs for all sorts of things. They're being used and they're uh, apparently achieving a fair amount of success using detection of uh, non-coding small RNAs for Alzheimer's disease, for other neurological conditions, Huntington's Korea. So it seems like there's something about the non-coding small, or there are medium-sized and larger segments of RNA that is particular to brain tissue or central nervous tissue. So I think that there's probably a lot of them in the central nervous tissue, which affords us an opportunity to sort of take a physiologic peek into damage within the, the, the neural system. And they're, they're, I didn't realize this, but 98% of the human genome does, does not have genes that are translated into proteins, but it has, it has DNA that's translated into RNA. And we're just beginning to learn what those small segments of non-coding RNA in fact, are doing. And there's a whole bunch of different names. However, my favorite name and kept coming up in the reading that I was doing was peewee interacting RNAs. I don't know if you saw that. (laughs) And I I was absolutely intrigued by the the name of this particular non-coding RNA, peewee interacting RNA. And that peewee is P-I-W-I, all in capitals. And so it's an acronym. And that acronym stands for P-Element-Induced Wimpy Testes. RNA. <laughs> wimpy? Wimpy testes. RNA. Huh. So th- this is one where the acronym doesn't, th- doesn't, doesn't, doesn't help resolve ambiguity. It makes you be more curious. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know what the derivation of that is or what the, the sense of humor of those scientists is. I thought that was very entertaining. But the other thing that I learned about this is that there's something called second impact syndrome uh, or SIS, which is a relatively rare occurrence, but it's absolutely devastating. So if you get concussed and you are not diagnosed properly, as Chris was was pointing out, and you go back into the game or you have a subsequent second concussion, you are at higher risk of getting the second impact syndrome. And what basically happens is that the, the CSF in your brain is instantaneously dysregulated. Your brain swells. And within minutes of the second concussion, you can drop dead. Your brain herniates, it swells, it herniates, and you can can drop dead. So it's a devastating occurrence. So if we had a very sensitive marker at the at the side of the pitch or the or the field to be able to detect what is a true concussion and what is not, we could probably prevent those things from happening. And I think it's also probably really important in terms of a of a of a diagnostic marker for uh, CTE, which is something that I think a lot of people are are becoming more and more cognizant of. Last thing I want to point out, Chris, you, you mentioned that it's not really feasible at the at the bedside or at the side of the field. Well, the, the, the genome sequencing technology has advanced to the point where there is this handheld device called a mini-ion. Uh, 
that is made by a competitor of Illumina, which is, I think, the, the one that makes the refrigerator-sized sequencing machine out of the UK. And what it does is it sort of microscopically sucks strands of RNA or DNA through these little pores. And every time a particular letter goes through one of those pores, the charge changes. And they've got thousands of pores on a membrane, and they can almost instantaneously determine what the gene sequence is with this handheld device. And if you combine Amazing. that if you combine that with computing power of a cell phone, you can program it to say, yes, there is the presence of this particular sequence of RNA in this in the saliva that you've dropped onto the top. I'll send you the I'll send you the link. It's absolutely yeah, fascinating. To see that. Absolutely fascinating. So the technology may in fact be here for us to be able to use this kind of research findings at the at the bedside or the pitch side. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Really amazing. Really cool. Really cool. And and one of the things, so one of the things that interested me about this study was, uh, as they point out in the beginning, so this is being tested in professional athletes. And the in terms of the gold standard way that you would currently diagnose a concussion, it requires, as they point out, subject honesty, investigator honesty, and an ability to detect something that is subjective. So the the athlete has to give you accurate information that may or may not always be possible to to disguise, but but there is a financial incentive or incentive in terms of one's athletic career to staying in the in in the game. And so you know the information you are getting may not be all that may not be perfectly accurate. You also require the investigator to be objective, which may or may not be true. And it's, you know, as they say, it's hard, it's not completely easy to diagnose a concussion. But that gets me to the one area. And I just want to say, for the record, I agree with you all. I, I had similar positive take on this study. The one area I was confused about, though, is how good do we think the gold standard really is? We, I can't think of a reason why it necessarily would create any specific bias because if you can't diagnose it all that well, then you know the the using the that is the gold standard compared to a a test. I don't think could be intentionally biased in any specific direction. I I, I suppose I don't know, but you know it strikes me that there isn't necessarily any true gold standard. Am I right about that? I, I think that's correct. That we are in this funny position where you know it, it, I guess the 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 analogy I would put is it's a little bit like many mental health diagnoses. You know, like depression is is defined by having a set of criteria. And how do we know those criteria are correct? We know they're correct because that's how we define depression, right? So it's it's circular, right? We don't we don't have a a true external gold standard beyond the the, the clinical criteria. And so concussion is the same has the same basic problem. You know, if we had a biomarker that would help us identify depression, we would be in a much better position, but we don't. So that this is one of the the things that makes, you know, studying mental health and antidepressants and you know, psychotropic drugs in general so very difficult is that they're they're, you know, you're you're starting with this heterogeneous set of clinical criteria. But 
underlying that, you don't really understand what the biology is. And similar, there's there's no true lab model, like a mouse model that you could use to, to study this thing in. So it makes it very challenging compared with like, say, you know, infectious disease where, you know, you have the agent, you have the disease, you have, you know, molecular evidence, you can you can study it in a much more refined way. And I think that, that this is this is the kind of thing that that really slows down research in a field is when you don't have a, you know, sort of a categorical way of defining the disease. And so maybe what we'll see is that this this uh, technology could eventually replace the clinical the clinical evaluation entirely and become a you know something that stands alone. Yep, yep. And as you say, I mean, this is this is a situation where we don't have the pure gold standard. But I guess you know. So one other thing I wanted to point to was, and you know, I bring this up only because it's something that we talk about in other studies is who funded this study. It was funded by the National Institutes for Health Research, the Medical Research Council, and also the Rugby Football Union. Now, you know, we don't have any details on how much Rugby Football Union was funding this study. It's also, I mean, this is also a test that is being developed for, uh, I I think, a for-profit company. So two of the authors are founding members and shareholders of Marker Diagnostic, a spin-off of a company of the University of Birmingham. So, and several other authors are employed by them. So I, I think, you know, essentially we're talking about a technology that is going to be generated for for sale. So it, it seems fair that we consider the funding source and the economic interests. You know, does that does that play in here at all? Or do we think, you know, this is really just, uh, uh, you know, very similar to when a drug company funds a, a study and we we note that we figure it into our calculations, but we don't discount it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, 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 I noticed that also, Matt. And, it, 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 you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a conflict of interest and it's something to declare. And this is discovery science to a certain extent and needs to be replicated. And, you know, it's really critical that something like this be, be replicated in the hands of people that don't have a conflict of interest. Um, and it, mm-hmm. that's, how, that's, that's how science works. But, you know, if it can be replicated by others, then, you know, I think we begin to build an evidence base that, in fact, this, this might be a, a way to go. Just going back to your uh, your other point, Matt. I, I, you know, I think that with respect to looking for biological markers or objective markers for these 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 sort of mental manifestations is is always going to be difficult until we have a, a a a a sort of anatomical or physiological marker that correlates extremely highly with a particular condition. We're always going to be in that tautology that. Chris was referring to, and I, I don't really know how to get get away from that, other than the sort of an iterative process of doing, you know, ever ever sort of more refined analyses using these objective markers against the clinical syndromes. But we're kind of stuck there. You know what it reminds me a wee bit of of is is how Alzheimer's research took a giant leap forward when it was, you know, exactly, you know, when we could we 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 were able to show that the PET scan was able to provide a like an in vivo, very accurate way of diagnosing Alzheimer's disease as opposed to post mortem, which is, you know, we shall stipulate is a little bit too late. Right, and that then led to our being able to identify the tau proteins as being associated. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, so the reason that I I bring it up is, you know, if we believe certainly when I watch American football games, I see a lot of times guys go off for the the concussion evaluation and they come right back. And, you know, to me, it looks like this is somebody who 
probably has a concussion. I'm not a medical doctor. I'm just telling you what I, my reaction is. And yet they go, you know, they're cleared and they go back on the field. And so I think to myself, well, if you, if you have a, an incentive structure that is designed to minimize the number of concussions you diagnose, and then you look at a whole bunch of biological markers that are associated with only say the most severe of concussions that correlate really well with that, but not with other maybe less severe concussions that you wouldn't necessarily want to take out of the game, then, you know, you potentially have, because you're using a gold standard that is not a true gold standard, you know, you potentially are, are you know, sort of getting yourself into that, in that loop where you're getting a result that is more favorable towards only diagnosing the most severe of concussions. I'm not saying that's happening. I'm just sort of playing out in my mind how these could go wrong. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things I think that the authors pointed out, I, may, I don't know if it was in this article or one of the other articles that I was reading about the other uses of these non-coding RNAs, was that it derived from an animal model. So they found these same findings, I think, in mice. And mice are not humans. We, we know that. But um, How does one concuss a mouse? Well, I, it, I don't think we want to go there because it's just too cruel to think about. I don't either. Yeah. yeah, I don't want to think about but that. There, there were animal models where there were concussions were induced in in mice. I don't know how they they actually diagnose them. So there is there is animal model data to support it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a grim thought. Any other last thoughts anyone wants to raise on this one before we move on? No, I don't think so. The only thing, the only last thing I would just point out is that they, you know, they definitely note that they took measures to account, you know, to to. Uh, limit the false discovery rate, which, as you know, I'm not a a statistical significance guy, but, you know, so they tested a lot of things. And so they want to protect against, you know, declaring things as being important when they may not be. I still, you know, still to me, it looks like a lot of comparisons. And so Mm -hmm. I, I, again, I want to see replication on this before I'm, I'm totally convinced, but, you know, I'll, I'll say that I thought, I thought it was really interesting and compelling evidence. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A good place to start from. But not the end. All right, so let's let's move on to our second segment where we're going to talk about an article that looked on how to take on the anti-vax industry. You know, so the discussion is motivated by a comment in Nature Medicine by Imran Ahmed and colleagues, and it was called "Dismantling the Anti-Vax Industry." And this came on the heels of you know the group a group that they are affiliated with went and did sort of a I don't I don't know what exactly you'd call it, but they went and and infiltrated probably isn't the right word, but they went and recorded a meeting of a conference of a group of of anti-vaxxers as part of the anti-vax industry. And and you know, as part of that, I think it it drew a lot of attention for me to the fact that unlike what I had, you know, not spent a lot of time thinking about but sort of passively assumed was that the that this is a business. The anti-vax industry is isn't just a bunch of people on the internet saying vaccines don't work or vaccines cause autism or vaccines are going to kill you. These are organized groups with a large financial incentive around pushing out misinformation around vaccines. And the, you know, this is just sort of I, I didn't really think of it as a as a an organized group in in the same way that you know we think of organized groups spreading truthful information about about vaccines so they they went in and in and recorded this this conference and they noted that the the anti-vax industry 
looks at COVID-19 and the COVID-19 development of a vaccine as a once in a generation opportunity to discredit vaccines, that this isn't like just sort of some, you know, coincidence that they are skeptical about the COVID-19 vaccine, that they see this as an opportunity to discredit not just the COVID-19 vaccine, but vaccines across the board, which, which you know, I suppose, again, something we should have been, I should have been more aware of going in. But, you know, it, it's really concerning. So there is a discussion in this paper about sort of some very simple methods that we should all be taking to try to push back against this information, which we could talk about in a minute. But before we do, I just want to sort of start with the, just to get your your, your thoughts on this idea of the, the, the threat and the challenge that we are up against with this, you know, very far reaching, sophisticated, uh, in terms of their social media outreach and, and programming organization, which a, with a huge financial stake in in spreading misinformation about vaccines. So, you know, Don, let me just start with you. Uh, was this something that you were, you know, aware of? And does this sort of in any way change your thinking about how we need to go about uh, pushing back against this misinformation? No, you know, Matt, I didn't know specifically about the large monetary incentive, but it doesn't surprise me at all. And it, it seems perfectly consistent. Yeah with the persistence and the vehemence of the anti-vax movement. And, and it's interesting, I hadn't also thought of, of this being a once-in-a-generation opportunity to, to really trash the whole concept of, of vaccines. But one of the one of the, it was interesting to to read this particular article that was based on work that was done by the Center for Countering Digital Hate. And interestingly, mm-hmm. um, in class that I taught last two weeks ago on our, our COVID class, we talked about a research project that these guys did where they looked at 812,000 posts on social media between February and, and March that contained disinformation about vaccines. And they, they identified that 73% of those 800,000 posts came from 12 individuals. And they call it the Pareto mm. effect, where you know, where twenty twenty percent of 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 a of a of a, of a group has a, an effect on eighty percent, like twenty percent of the wealth. I think in Italy was, or eighty percent of the wealth was owned by twenty percent of the people, and they they called that the Pareto effect. And they're calling this the Pareto effect of anti-vaxxers. And you know, they 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 go through the list and they they list some of these anti-vax postings. And you know, there's some recognizable names on there. Robert Kennedy Jr. is number two. I mean, he is he is <laughs> yeah. absolutely in that high on the list. As is um, Wakeman. So mm-hmm. it's 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 just it's so heartbreaking, and it's Wakefield, right? Uh, so so heartbreaking and so insidious, especially now that we're in the midst of this lethal pandemic. Yeah. So I was as the two of you were were were, were appalled to read this and and a little bit surprised at how how much I did not know about this. You know, I sort mm-hmm. of assumed that this was like a self, self-organizing self organic group of concerns, right. parents, right. for example. But it is not that. If, if I could just read into the record one of the things that they say, he says in his opening paragraph, he said, in reality, the key protagonists of the anti-vax industry are a coherent group of professional propagandists. These are people 
people running multi-million dollar organizations incorporated mainly in the USA with as many as 60 staff each. They produce training manuals for activists, tailor their messages for different audiences, and arrange meetings akin to annual trade conferences like any other industry. Hmm. And I was just like, wow, you know, that is just, this is, this is not a yeah. little thing. And then you say, well, what motivates them? And then that's the interesting second half of this. It's like, why, why are they so keen? Like what's in it for them? You know, if you don't want to take a vaccine, opt out. But why, like, like why make this your, make this a business? And the answer is, is that these same groups are also engaged in promoting various alternative health products. So it's, it's very similar mm-hmm. to like Alex Jones and Infowars, if you're remember that his his business model yep. was to have the sort of outrageous right-wing propaganda, you know, alleging conspiracy theories about everything. And in between these segments, he would sell you, you know, basically, you know, protein supplements. And, and yep. that was how he made all his money, was hawking all this stuff. But he used the outrage as a way of sort of generating activism and motivation in his audience, and then they would sell to you. And that seems to be what the anti-vax industry is also doing, is, is selling you stuff as an alternative to vaccines. So they're basically, you know, saying, don't take the MMR. Instead, take the stuff that we're selling that is totally scientifically unproven, and you can rest assured that you will be much healthier using our product than with the stuff for which there is science. It is so cynical and so, I think, evil, actually. But, but Chris, how, how, I mean, it's, it's, the, 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 the consequences are more severe, but how is this really different than Prevagen? How is this really different than anything? It's the same thing as Prevagen. Anything that's sold in a GNC store. Yeah, you know, it's all, it's the all same. All the stuff that is not go back, go back and listen. All the stuff that's not regulated by the FDA. That, go back and listen to our Prevagen yeah. episode. <laughs> well, uh, the difference insidious. is that the, the, the GNC people are not saying don't take vaccines. They're saying right. you know your muscles will be bigger, your your sex life will be better, your mental acuity will be sharper if and you take all, our products. And it's all but they're not oil. saying don't do you know don't go and get your cholesterol checked. Don't get your annual flu shot. But these guys are absolutely saying, don't get your annual flu shot. Take our stuff instead. You know, there is the the conflict of interest that they don't want to talk about. It's worse, but it's analogous. Yeah. It's hard. It's just, it's just awful. Awful. Yep. Yep. And, you know, they, they, they tip their hat to this conspiracy at the very beginning, because if you'll recall, the anti-vaccine movement was in full swing way back in April and May of last year, before there were any COVID vaccines to rail against. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, the the other thing I didn't exactly realize, I suppose I I should have, but is that the it isn't just the anti-vaxxers who have a financial stake in all of this. It's the tech companies that also have a, a financial right. incentive because they produce a massive amount of content that people get attracted to on social media that, you know, shutting that down as social, you know, many of the social media platforms have started to do, not all of them, but 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 some of them is actually costing them business. So the financial incentive just really hasn't hasn't been there. They point to some interesting things, I thought, in talking about how these anti-vax messages get out there. So they say each anti-vax message essentially has three parts. COVID isn't dangerous. Vaccines are dangerous. You can't trust doctors or scientists. And it's really that simple because, you know, people, you know, can be convinced that, you know, the, there is some some conspiracy out there. The government is hiding something that they, you know, they don't want you to know about that, you know, there is this reason why the the cure is really simple, the treatment is really simple, and, they, and the government just wants to sell you vaccines for whatever, whatever reason. And, 
you know, it's 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 disconcerting that that this is such easy messaging. And then they say, so what's the solution? And I, you know, there presumably is no easy solution. But one of the things that they point to is, <laughs> I'm just going to read this. When we when you see anti-vax and misinformation on social media, we must resist falling into the trap of engaging with it, however tempting it may be to point out the obvious flaws and falsehoods. Engaging with misinformation online spreads it further. If we scratch the itch, we spread the disease. It is more effective to share good information about vaccines from trusted sources. And when each of us have our turn to tell our friends and followers about the you know the, our experiences with the vaccine. So it you know, I, I totally agree with that, but it is A, difficult to resist, and B, doesn't feel like that's gonna that's gonna really end the problem. And it's it's really quite effective even before even before COVID. The childhood immunization rate in West Hollywood is less than it is in South Sudan. Mm. It's wow. working. Boy. Yeah. What a world we live in, folks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a it's a sad point to have to end on, but we will do it and let's move on to our third segment, which is our amazing and amusing. I'm gonna I'm gonna go first this one. And I have, you know, in this particular instance a very short one that I want to share with you. But I I recently put out on Twitter a, a tweet in which I asked if anyone had published a joke in a scientific paper. And I was <laughs> I was impressed with the number of people who who maybe haven't necessarily published a, a joke but have given us some kind of a pun in a paper. And so I was I was looking through them and my my favorite pun that came up in a in a scientific paper was published by one of the authors was a, a colleague of mine, Brian James, but a number of authors whom I don't know. And they were they were developing a method that is an alternative to spaghetti plots. Do you guys know spaghetti plots? Mm-hmm. Are, are the, is, is that like noodles? No, spaghetti plots are an actual method for displaying data in which you link all the data over time and it looks like a, a whole bunch of spaghetti. And they've developed a, a new method that is, uh, they believe is a, a better method called, and they've called them lasagna plots. And so the title of their article is Lasagna Plots, a saucy alternative to spaghetti plots. <laughs> which, you know, oh, God. anyone who's willing to, right. to write a punny, a punny title like that just makes my day. All right, Chris, what do you what do you got for us? All right. Well, since you started there with a with a with a with a joke, I, I feel like I, I need to pass on this recent epiphany. You all know about the uh, you know, why did the chicken cross the road joke? And the answer, you know, mm-hmm. to get to the other side. Now going through my entire life, I always took that joke at face value that you know, it was just like stating the obvious, the chicken crossed the road because he wanted to be on the other side of the road. But someone pointed out to me that actually there's a there's a deeper meaning that we're talking about going to the other side, like the chicken dies and goes to the other side, oh. goes to sort of chicken heaven. He crossed the road because he wanted to get to the other side. Oh, how zen. And then like suddenly I was like, That's oh my God, this rocked my world that I need to like reconsider this joke as being actually rather a sophisticated joke. Interesting. <laughs> it totally worked. It totally rocks my world. <laughs> anyway, that, that wasn't what I was planning to talk about. I'm just riffing off of you. But, you know, since we were talking about vaccines and, you know, talking about COVID vaccines, we were talking about COVID vaccines a lot. And I think we probably will continue to talk about COVID vaccines. One of the things about the, you know, the Pfizer and Moderna 
vaccines in particular is is the, the the confluence of all these sort of amazing new technologies that came together to to you know allow this these products to come to market so quickly and we focus a lot on the mrna sequencing and how how clever that was to like you know go from creating proteins and manufacturing mass producing proteins or other antigens to instead coding for the thing that casts the proteins and just have cells make them on their own which is so seems so clever but of course there there's a lot more to these vaccines than that and one of them is these complex lipid nanospheres that allow these RNA molecules to be delivered. But I recently stumbled across a third part of this, which I, I, I totally did not know, that relates to a body of work by a researcher called Catalin Carico. And maybe you've run across her, yeah. Don? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's she, a really fascinating sort of, story. from Yugoslavia or... Something like that. Yeah, yeah. And had been sort of studying RNA molecules forever and was was really interested in this idea of, you know, using RNA as a way of coding for proteins. But what she found is that like when you injected naked RNA into a mouse or something, the mouse got very sick. In other words, it had a reaction. It was the RNA was reactogenic. And eventually this, you know, observation led her to discover that that RNA molecules from different sources are more or less reactogenic. And so like bacterial RNA is very reactogenic, which totally makes sense because if, you know, there's a single strand of RNA floating around in your bloodstream and it, it, it oughtn't be there, it's probably because an E. coli released it and you, you know, your immune system should get on the, get on the job, right? So, you know, there's a reason why some of these molecules are reactogenic. But then the question is why are human RNAs not reactogenic? And and, and and you know and and in between those extremes where bacterial RNAs are very reactogenic and human RNA, mRNAs are basically non-reactogenic, you have the observation that that ribosomal RNA right is 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 also quite reactogenic, but not as reactogenic as the bacterial. RNA, but our ribosomes, as as Don and knows, are derived from bacteria, right? And so there's like they they are kind of like an evolutionary intermediate point between mm -hmm. those two. And so all of this eventually led to a whole series of really fantastic papers. One of which I'll recommend. It's a bit old now, but it's called "Suppression of RNA Recognition by Toll-like Receptors: The Impact of Nucleoside Modification and the Evolutionary Origin of RNA," published in Immunity in 2005. It's a bit of a dense paper, so. So you might have to read it a couple times, but it is a really interesting paper because basically it comes down to the fact that, that RNA, messenger RNA, is heavily modified by host, by, by human, or I should say eukaryotic cells in general. So they don't just write the string of RNA, but then they that our, our body, our cells, tags these RNAs in different ways by adding methyl groups or isomerizing the uridine, uridine molecules in them to... to basically say to the body, this is an RNA that came from me, whereas bacterial RNA, which doesn't have these methylations and doesn't have these isomerized uridines, is not from me, and you should react to that RNA, but not this RNA. And so like that discovery that, that there's a lot more to the structure of RNA in terms of triggering or not triggering the innate immune system is what eventually led to the current generation of COVID vaccines. Because without being able to modify the synthetic RNAs that Moderna makes or Pfizer makes in this way, those vaccines would be horribly reactogenic and just completely intolerable as, uh, as, a, as a tool for making a vaccine in a human. And so the, the 
the RNAs that are used in those two vaccines have been modified in these ways directly based on the research of of Catlin Carrico, who is the chief uh, scientific officer, in fact, for um, either Pfizer or Moderna, one of the two. I think it's Moderna. Um, I think I think it might be Moderna, but but like you know, somebody recognized that this little thing that she knew was a very important little thing. That if this whole idea of RNA vaccines was going to go anywhere, obviously you needed to pay attention to the you know the 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 immunogenicity of the RNA structures. And it's all about these post-translational modifications of the RNA, which is done by human cells or other mammalian cells or eukaryotic cells, but is not done by bacteria. And that's why we were able to do what we did. And 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 in fact, really cool. she, she and her colleague were the first ones to get injected with the Moderna vaccine after the clinical trial ended. Is that which, right? Yeah, which is pretty cool. Which is pretty cool. Mm. Very cool. Very cool. All right. Don, what do you got for us? All right. So the CDC just released guidance that fomites, which are surfaces and objects, are not considered to be a very efficient means of transmitting COVID-19. And this is this is mm-hmm. sort of a hobby horse that Chris and I have been on for a while. And we were glad to see that the CDC finally agrees with us that it's not it's not worth uh, investment of time washing Stop you know, the, the out- hygiene in theater. <laughs> the, out- the outside of your Cheerios box. But there there there's a body of evidence to suggest that in fact there are uh, there are there are there are studies that have looked at the persistence of pathogens on surfaces. And there's one in particular which is from the Department of Food Science and Human Nutrition from Clemson. Pete Dawson is the first author. It's the residence time and food contact time effects on transfer of Salmonella typhimerium from tilewood carpet. Testing the five-second rule. Ah, I love it. So you guys know what the (laughs) five-second rule is, right? I live by the five-second rule. What are you talking about? When you describe to the listeners what the five-second rule is. Well, if you drop your food on the floor, if you pick it up within five seconds, it is totally safe to eat. <laughs> right, right. Totally. So, so what these guys, what these people did is that they took a, a pure culture of Salmonella typhimurium and with specific amounts, and they put it onto three different services, finished wood, carpet, and ceramic tile. And bottom line is they found that the five-second rule is in fact true, but it depends. <gasps> But it depends. Oh. <laughs> so they, they were able to obtain approximately 60% of the bacteria on the, on the initiation surface, if it was a ceramic tile, from a piece of bologna that was in contact with that Ooh. ceramic tile for five seconds or less. So, however, if that same piece of bologna was applied to a carpet that contained the same concentration of salmonella on the carpet, less than 5% of those bacteria were transferred to the bologna. And that was even more true Mm. to a piece of bread. I was crestfallen because they did not, along with that test, a (laughs) one-sided piece of bread with uh, peanut butter on it. So I think that's a, yeah, that was, a huge gap. That would have been the way to go. Scientific approach. That would have been the more interesting. Further research is needed. Further so research you, is needed if, for sure. If you if you drop your donut, your Krispy Kreme donut on the carpet, you're safe. But if you drop it onto a ceramic tile floor, you have to kiss it goodbye. Oh my gosh, uh, that that is 
Mostly good news. Your free Krispy Kreme donut that you got for getting your your COVID nineteen vaccine, which by the way, the the closest Krispy Kreme to us appears to be in Connecticut. I went and looked it up. So <laughs> sure. we gotta go. We yeah. gotta go. We road uh, trip. That's what I say. Yep. Probably a Krispy Kreme donut without pathogens is probably just as dangerous for your health as a Krispy Kreme donut with pathogens. That's probably true. That's probably true. Well, that is the end of our program. If you get any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at, at PopHealthyX, or you can tweet me at, at PropMadFox, or Don at, at DTheo1, or Chris at ID.Gill, or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Assistant Dean of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health, for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound and editing thanks for joining us we hope you enjoyed it and we hope you will download our next episode